the new society is still very dynamic, and it's hard for us to predict, you know, where it will go from here. But I think there's a lot of hope for Sudan that this is a country in which real revolutionary social and political change is possible. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. In today's episode, I'm joined by Alden Young, who's an assistant professor at the University of California in Los Angeles. Professor Young is the author of the book, Transforming Sudan, Decolonization, Economic Development, and State Formation, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. We discuss Sudan's relationship to Egypt and Britain, post-colonial Sudan, and the ongoing contestations of power. Thank you for joining us on the show today, Alden. Thank you for having me. So your work cuts at the intersection of economics, international relations, and contemporary events in Sudan, the Gulf, and beyond. When did you first start researching Sudan, and what is the history of politics currently? I first started um, working on Sudan or thinking about Sudan in a scholarly way when I was at the London School of Economics. And I had briefly touched down in Sudan while I was studying abroad in Cairo in 2003, but it was only for a brief moment on the way to Ethiopia. And that sort of changed my, my thinking about, you know, how Egypt itself is situated and made me think a lot more about Egypt's connections to Africa and looking southwards. But it was in London that I was being taught about Sudan, the London School of Economics, and the, the kind of classic texts that they teach us about Sudan talk about this kind of primordial conflict between Arabs and Africans, or about Muslims and non-Muslims. But that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. It, it didn't strike um, me as something that can be a useful explanation in social science for why conflict happened. So I thought there had to be more to the story. But I was having a hard time getting around this massive historiography about sort of the civil wars in Sudan and, and this description that they are ongoing for hundreds of years and that these are kind of entrenched conflicts. And so I, I became curious about Sudan and thinking about ways in which you can get beyond that narrative. So can you name the authors or the people who are speaking about Sudan in a narrow or perhaps superficial manner? I, wanna, I don't want to say that they're like superficial, but it's just that a lot of the historians that, that talk about Sudan and, and I think because the civil war had gone on in Sudan for so long, from the early 80s through um, into the early 21st century, most people have had to take took sides. And so there's definitely a generation of scholars who, you know, for better or worse, were forced to take a side in the conflict. And you know, I talked to Professor John Ryle, and he was, for instance, telling me, who's done a lot of work with the Rift Valley Institute, and he was telling me, you know, I stopped being a journalist because I realized that for me, it was no longer about, you know, covering the issue. He wanted to help fight for the independence of South Sudan. And so, you know, his scholarship and his work became tied to that cause. But I think in some ways, I was lucky to first go to Sudan in 2008, after the peace treaty had been signed. And so, I think for me and the generation of younger scholars who are about my age, we came to Sudan in a period in which the kind of divide, the civil war was over. You didn't have to be associated with one side or the other in the conflict. And I think that made it possible for us to write about Sudan in different ways. 
So I want to turn to Egypt's relationship to Sudan. In a different shade of colonialism, Professor Yves Trapal interrogates a triangle of colonialism that was marked by Great Britain, Egypt, and Sudan during the late 19th century, early 20th century. And she argues that Egypt's relationship to Sudan was part of its nationalist and colonialist interests. That is to say, Egypt functioned as a colonized colonizer towards Sudan. To what extent does your work support or challenge this claim? I think that's a really important claim. I mean, I think Egypt itself, right? I mean, Egypt is not necessarily, I mean, Egypt itself is still part of the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. And of course, its relationship is changing, right? And the way in which it becomes dominated by Muhammad Ali's family. You have this kind of occupation or colonized um, disposition within Egypt itself. And definitely for the Egyptian elite, their expansion into Sudan is important in the way in which they're trying to make a claim in the 19th century world to being an important and civilized state. And an important civilized state has its own colony. And so I think definitely in many ways you see the legacy of Egyptian imperialism in Sudan and in the creation of, I suppose, what we would consider modern Sudan. And it goes in a number of different directions. So not just the creation of the state bureaucracy, but also the incorporation of certain ethnic groups within the Sudanese state and the differentiated ways in which they're incorporated. And also, I've just been reading um, the scholar... uh, Muhammad Abu Qasim Haj Hamid's uh, two-volume history of Sudan. And, you know, he even talks about the ways in which modern education was spread in Sudan by those being, by Tatawi and people like that being expelled from Egypt and the way in which they built these schools. And so I do think that in many ways, the incorporation of Sudan into the sort of 19th century world of imperialism was through Egypt, though the Egyptians are not coming up with this concept of a world of imperial empires, right? I mean, this is something in which they find themselves perhaps more dominant than the Sudanese, but also dominating. So I want to turn to identity and specifically the relationship between Arab and Blackness within the Sudanese context. So Leila Abu Leila, the Sudanese writer, author of Kindness of Enemies, once said, quote, Sudan is not Arab enough for Arabs and not African enough for Africans. To what extent do you think that this statement holds true for Sudan? I think it definitely holds true for the way we we write our historiographies, right? I mean, Sudan's not really Middle Eastern enough for, for instance, for Middle Eastern studies in the U.S., and it's not really African enough for African studies. But the question, I guess, I think there's a deeper question of what it means to be, for instance, a Black Arab. And I think in some ways this gets to this question of whether or not Arab and Black I mean, I think in the American context, we want to think of them as sort of racist. But it's not clear to me that, for instance, Arab is a race in the way that the American context of black and white would function. And so if you think of Arab as an ethnicity, then I think the Sudanese, I mean, northern Sudanese, many of the Sudanese who would consider themselves Arabs, can be thought of as black, as black Arab. And I guess then the relationship becomes a question of what it means to be African and Arab and whether or not those are political identities that are sometimes in conflict with each other. And so you see, for instance, you know, the question of whether or not South Sudan should join, a, what do you call it, a federation with East Africa. And in doing something like our North Sudan would be in the Arab League or, you know, Somalia, where they don't really speak Arabic, but it's a member of the Arab League. I mean, these are in some ways political Um, connotations that overlay. And so I think that's what makes this really hard is that we often mean many different things when we're using these terms. 
to what extent do you think that these political terms or ethnic and religious and racial identities dovetail with the legacy of colonialism and specifically the legacy of British colonialism and how people imagine themselves post-independence? I think they definitely do. I mean, I think they, a lot of it has to do... I mean, I think in some ways Jonathan Glassman's book, uh, War of Words, War of Stones, is important um, in the sense that he talks about how fluid these identities are, particularly at the end of colonialism. And a lot of it has to do with the mobilizations that are necessary to end, um, to end you know, the European colonization of Africa. And, and in different ways in which these mobilizations function. And I think in that way, you see how overlapping they can be. So you can see, you know, on one hand, a Sudanese man can be an Arab man. He can also be a proud Pan-Africanist. He can identify as Black, um, but yet at the same time see himself as, see him or herself as, as racially superior to other, to other groups within Sudan. And I think these things overlap in each other in many different ways. And I think a lot of them have to do with the idea that certain groups are privileged during the colonial period. But those privileges are not purely created during British colonialism or, or Turkish Egyptian colonialism. Or one of the legacies of what the British and Turkish did in Sudan is that they combined a number of, of national projects into one state. And those projects are often at, at, at odds with each other. I want to turn to your research a bit where you focus on the history of economic science and expertise in Sudan. Your work explores how post-colonial Sudan was saturated by an array of socio-technical experts, specifically economists. And you look at the ways that Sudanese elite were educated in Europe and how they were part of establishing a bureaucratic state. For example, the Sudanese economist Syed Meki Abbas was Oxford educated and became the first Sudanese director of the Kazira scheme and served as a mediator for various projects. Can you speak to the ways that Sudanese technocrats in the immediate aftermath of independence were part of economic rationalism, or even one could say neoliberalism? I think, um, I mean, most of them, I think, would be what probably now would be seen as sort of center-left economists, right? I mean, today, I think they would not be considered, like, very right-wing. I mean, they were probably Fabian socialists. And so I think what made economics attractive to many people in countries like Sudan was that contrary to the older beliefs of or not you want to call it colonial economics or um, the colonial policy, development economics as it was being developed in the 40s and 50s held out the promise that through state planning, a country like Sudan could radically transform its position and remake society. And you see a certain amount of perhaps arrogance on the part of Sudanese planners and the idea that you know they were able to self-define themselves as an elite. And so in some ways, it reinforced the legacies of hierarchy that the colonial regime had left behind. And it empowered them to think that they were the vanguard of society who were tasked with remaking Sudan itself. And their basic theory, and this is a theory that spread all around the world, was the idea that there was a modern sector of the economy and a vast backward sector. And of course, they saw themselves in the modern sector, and they saw their task as transforming what they consider to be the backward sectors of society. And if anything, I think one of the problems is that it, it had in its base a kernel of authoritarian. There was a kind of way in which they were like, okay, we'll have a parliament, but of course we can't really listen to anyone because we as the modern sector of society are tasked with transforming everyone else. And in that, I think 
they unfortunately found themselves borrowing or justifying the most authoritarian tendencies of the colonial regime and reinforcing those, I mean, perhaps for a different purpose, one that they would have seen as serving the Sudanese people, but the kind of elitism that they would have picked up at Oxford and Cambridge only magnified their sense that they were a vanguard apart from the rest of society. In the post-World War II period, Cold War very much fractured various countries on the African continent, some aligned with the United States, others aligned with the Soviet Union, and others non-aligned. Where did Sudan fit into this political regime within the Cold War? Sudan finds itself, in many ways, Sudan, the Sudanese story is a bit tragic, right? On the one hand, Sudanese independence is perhaps accelerated because of um, the machinations between the Americans, the British, and the Egyptians over the greater control of the Nile Valley. And Sudan, the Americans and British are determined to prevent Sudan from being united with Egypt. Not that necessarily many people in Sudan necessarily wanted to be united with Egypt, but there was a strong constituency that saw within Egypt the possibility of uniting with Egypt, a possibility for a larger development of the Nile Valley. But that's thwarted. But then the Sudanese find themselves, unfortunately, not of as much strategic interest as I believe that they had hoped. The British are not particularly interested by the late 1950s in the development of Sudan. And the Americans and the Soviet Union decide that Sudan is not the most significant of its partners in the Red Sea region. They tend to focus both on Egypt and Ethiopia. And of course, they have their alliances with Saudi Arabia. And Sudan finds that the aid that it had expected to be able to receive because of the Cold War contest does not material. And so Sudan's development plans, they proceed with the expansion of cotton production, and they're trying to, these economists are trying to tame the Sudanese society to make it more efficient in the world market. But they find that there is neither a market, the British no longer want their goods. The British are being pressured by the Americans to take American cotton instead. And the Soviet Union and the United States are not particularly interested in Sudan. So I think initially Sudan has this problem with the Cold War that it's a country of neglect. So I want to turn to your engagement with history of science in your book. In your book, Transforming Sudan, you examine the ways that economic science and development projects prefigured to the Sudanese post-independence nationalist project. And you particularly uh, say this quote, what happens when science engages with large and unbounded questions about the nature of society? That is, when science becomes public reason. So for me, as a historian of science, I'm always fascinated with how scholars, historians, and other people interpret the field and the ways that the formations of knowledge get entangled in political and social history. Can you explain the extent that Sudan was a living laboratory and tell us about the non-elite Sudanese people and Sudanese women who contributed to public knowledge and reason? Sudan, in many ways, like many countries, is a test case. It becomes a tool of political propaganda. And so many of the debates enters in the 1930s on the question of whether or not the British are correctly managing the resources of the country. If the British are saying that colonialism serves a purpose of development and civilization, it opens themselves up to this basic attack. And I think you see it throughout the African diaspora. You see it in the works of somebody like, for instance, um, Eric Williams. This idea that that's what the British have claimed they've been doing. You can use political economy and economics to create this discourse of accounting. And you can be like, okay, if you say that you've made our lives better, well, what if we actually count? And so you start seeing newspaper articles and Egyptian propaganda spreading throughout Sudan with this argument, look, the British haven't actually made your lives better. The British have actually been stealing from you. 
And they talk about all these numerous ways. The British have constrained how much water you can use. The British have taken your land. The British aren't reinvesting. And I think it's on this discourse that you start seeing popular mobilization. And so you see um, one of the biggest uh, social formations is the Anti-Imperialism League in Sudan. And that will go on to become the root of the Communist Party. The Communist Party being an underground party, but the Anti-Imperialism League being above ground. And in many ways, it becomes the largest party in Africa. And so it's something that spreads considerably in, in numerous different ways. And you see it also in the basic rhetoric of the Muslim um, Brotherhood. You see it even in the way in which the different large Sufi orders talk. And so it permeates Sudanese politics, this idea that we've been ripped off and or we've been exploited. You know, we've been exploited by the Turkish, we've been exploited eventually by the Egyptians, and we've been exploited by the British. And this, I think, is a really popular discourse that spreads throughout the country. And the British try to respond, right? I mean, one of the ways in which the British respond, while elite Sudanese try to control this discourse of underdevelopment as their national project, it gets picked up in almost every area of Sudan. So you see Darfurian groups organizing by the early 1960s with development specifically in their title. And you see in the South, South Sudanese historians returning to the archives even today to look at the plans that the British had laid out and saying, look, the reason these plans were not pursued was because of the Arabs were exploiting us. And so you see this discourse sort of permeate almost all areas of Sudanese society, and it can be used as a weapon against each other, right? So it was a very effective weapon to be used against the British, but then it becomes a weapon against the Egyptians. And then you start seeing it being used by various groups um, in Sudan who consider themselves to be marginalized or who are marginalized against the center. And so you see this constant discourse of exploitation um, and theft permeating Sudanese society. And it, and it comes from this, I think, basic idea that in the 19. 30s and 40s, you could account, right? So we can account for the money that's missing, or we can account for why we are in this position of being dominated that we're in, or this poverty that we perceive. We can, there's something missing. There was something that could have been done otherwise. Or even today, people will talk about the missing sums from the period of oil. And they're like, you know, we can count how much money has been stolen from the country. Can you name some women or people from poor backgrounds, the Belahin perhaps? who were part of doing that accounting or, or challenging the imperial structure during that period? Yeah, and one of the women economists I'm studying now is um, Fatima Babakar Mahmoud. And you see it, it permeate in so many ways. She starts writing, this is a slightly later period, but she starts writing beginning in the 1960s and 70s. And one of the critiques becomes, if Sudan had the largest communist party in Africa, and the, why did, when the communists came to power in 69, with the military, did it go so poorly? And one of her critiques is, is that there was a kind of chauvinism inside the Communist Party itself, and that that's what prevented them from being able to reach and make alliances with rural communities, poorer communities, and even the women within the Communist Party, because the Communist Party had a huge women's league. And in some ways, similar critiques can be made about the Muslim Brotherhood. One of the things that the Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan is most proud of is that it did expand and bring many more women into positions of authority and into its Shura Council and even as ministers. But there's this question of, I mean, you see this critique constantly about the patriarchy within the Muslim Brotherhood itself and its inability to really integrate women and people from other marginalized communities into the real decision-making of Sudan. And so you see even in the 1990s that the big critique that comes out is this black book and you see the list of who they've promoted in the Islamic government to senior positions. The Islamic government said that one of the reasons that Islamism would work would be that it would transcend 
supposedly tribal or ethnic and racial identity. But, you know, when they list who are actually the senior members, they still go back to the same groups that have been in power from the very beginning of the Turkish state. And so this idea of a racial question, gender question, and um, and marginalization never goes away. And similar, I mean, Fatima Becker makes similar critiques for the Communist Party. And then, you know, and from there you get this critique and she develops these theories of womanism. And so you see this way in which scholars like her are, way in which they're existing with, um, with other works of Black feminist critique. That's exciting, especially in light of the critiques that you're describing by Fatima, a Sudanese theorist, scholar. It's very similar to what I think about the critiques that the Kamahi River Collective made about socialists and particularly Black chauvinism in the United States during the Civil Rights Movement, as well as during the Women's Liberation Movement, as well as in other contexts, not just in the United States, but more globally. So to see these parallels, it goes to show that some of these leftists and communist and socialist parties have a lot of work to do to be a bit more inclusive and also just horizontal with with leadership. I guess it's also important to point out the way that it's often described by nationalists, like, you know, even scholars like Hassan al-Tarabi, part of what they see themselves as doing in the early 1950s is addressing what they consider to have been one of the travesties of, of British colonialism, which is what they think is the transformation of Islamic law into what he calls um, women's law. They feel that Islamic jurisprudence and Islamic theorists have been transformed from what they see themselves as, you know, legal theorists in the broad general sense or, or scholars in the broad general sense to being only women scholars. Part of that is that they feel that Islamic law, Sharia, as is codified by the British, becomes primarily a question of family matter. And so part of their project is also, what you'll see as a project by the 70s and 80s, is what they call the Islamization of knowledge, and is to break out of this barrier of what they see as the restriction of, of their field of knowledge. And even some of the early d- disputes between the Republican brothers and the, and the Muslim Brotherhood are over this question of whether or not the British have the right to ban things like female circumcision. And so you see all these discussions going back and forth, and you see um, Mahmoud Mohammed Taha come out famously and say, no, mm, the British do not have that right, right? Because he says the British are doing this only to say that we are barbarian. And so it's on the backs of women that so much of the nationalist discourse is actually crafted. So I want to turn to the present. We've seen over the past year that Sudan has experienced a wave of protests led by women calling for an end to state surveillance and violence. And in July 2019, you co-wrote an article in Foreign Affairs entitled, What Happens in Sudan Doesn't Stay in Sudan, where you inquire about whether Khartoum will be part of a new African order. And you write, quote, the question that now hangs over the region is that what the next era will bring? Will it usher in a new or more democratic order built on a shared foundation of national sovereignty and collective security? Or will it bring a closed authoritarian order that is beholden to the extra-regional powers? Do you still think that Sudan is a microcosm of a new political order in the East African context? Is it a harbinger for what's to come elsewhere? I think Sudan is still at the forefront of this question of what will happen. I think you see it in how much sovereignty can be exercised in a country like Sudan. So Sudan, you know, I mean, as you probably know, is $50 billion in debt by some estimates. It owes at least 3 to $5 billion to the World Bank and IMF that it needs to pay in arrears um, before it can receive external loans again. And it's only surviving right now because of contributions from some of the Gulf states, which will run out shortly. So 
saw the finance minister speaking recently, and he said, you know, we need $5 billion critically in order to simply be able to pay salaries and function. And another scandal sort of, or semi-scandal is that Sudan just launched its first satellite into space, but the satellite was launched from China, and it's not clear the complete all of the Sudanese government was aware. And so perhaps it was only launched with the military's consent. And so you see these dynamics of Sudan's ongoing dependence. Despite the fact that some of the strongest forces were the Sudanese Professional Association and these, and the resurgence of the Sudanese Communist Party, and you see a resurgence of um, leftist activism throughout Sudan. And you see the large role of women activists in Sudanese society. And I think on one hand, there are moral issues that I think broadly the broadest base was the idea that I think across Sudanese society, there was a rejection of the morality police, right? And so the idea that you could be punished for being outside, that women would be beaten for wearing trousers or denied entry to universities, or that, you know, young people who would like to walk along the Nile together with in a mixed gender group. I think there's a broad rejection of those kind of restrictions in urban Sudan across sort of political spectrum. So people who maybe would be seen as on the right and people who are on the left could kind of agree that this had gone too far. One of the most exciting things I remember from my recent trip to Sudan in September was that even on the street after 11 p.m., you can still hear music. And for years in Sudan, right, there's been very little public music and definitely not at night. Those kind of things, I think, are shared across the board. And I don't think that will come back. The project to Islamize society, I think, has been broadly rejected. And I don't mean the role of Islam in general, but I think that particular version of an Islamizing project from the state, from above, and the control of personal behavior is gone. But I think what makes Sudan interesting, and I think it's what you see in Lebanon, it's what you're seeing ongoing in Ethiopia, it's what will probably reappear in places like Egypt, is that the Sudanese state in many ways is broke. And it requires large sums of money to be injected from abroad. Either that or a drastic transformation of the state bureaucracy itself. Particularly in Sudan, like in Egypt, the civilian government is not able to regulate the military and security sector. And so the inability to rationalize the security sector, I think, causes ongoing and um, repeated crisis to reemerge inside Sudan. Also in Sudan, we're not sure which parts of the security sector are able to generate their own revenue. And so many of the security, many of the militias actually control productive resources and then sell those resources abroad in their own accounts without sharing that money with the central government. And so I think because of that, ongoing crisis will reappear over and over again. And for the Sudanese, I think the gamble that they're trying to make is that there's a way in which they can reapproach the world economy or change their relationship with the world economy that will generate more revenue for Sudan. But that has to be done in dialogue with other countries and puts the Sudanese in a particularly vulnerable position. What you point out is that austerity debt and a particular kind of political crisis contributed to the rise of these protests and to everyday Sudanese people questioning the state and its inability to offer much to its citizens. That allows the room for renegotiating what people can do politically. Do you think this kind of political resurgence is part of a broader framework of decolonizing political infrastructure, both nationally or even internationally between institutions like the IMF or Gulf states? Or is it just some other kind of project? For sure, I think you're right. Austerity, debt, and militarization have fostered vast protests in Sudan. And I think called into question the very legitimacy 
of the Sudanese state and particularly its elite. And on the upside, that those protests, I think, if they can be sustained and spread beyond Sudan. So you see the protests in, in Ethiopia, perhaps we'll see protests again, large protests again in Egypt. We see them in Lebanon. We see them in Iraq. Of course, the violence that's going on in Yemen. I think in some ways this inflames the whole region and calls into question the international order and the kind of exploitation that's been going on, and particularly um, the kind of militarization. And I think that opens up the possibility for imagining a different social order, a different um, way of organizing the society and economy. And you see this from professionals who I think believe that, that in many ways they've been forced to run their institutions alone, right? And so the shadow unions that were played such a big part in the revolution in Sudan organized initially because they said that you know, both the, the official unions were captured by the state and the management was not taking care of the basic necessities necessary to even run their businesses, to run the operations of things like hospitals. So people were forced to join um, underground unions in order to do exchanges between hospitals, for instance, for medicines or, or resources or pool cars and vehicles. And so many parts of Sudanese society believe that they've been sort of managing alone and that they can continue doing that or they can scale it up. And so you see this recourse to neighborhood committees, which are, you know, forced to police and take care of traffic and basic resources in different neighborhoods. The danger, I think, though, are the, the alternative danger side is that there's a way in which capital as it's organized now perhaps feels that it can in some ways ignore countries like Sudan so that, you know, the crisis can happen and the way in which capital responds is by targeting only a few sites that it feels it needs. So, for instance, you have mining going on throughout the country for both, I mean, both precious metals, petroleum, but also metals that are necessary for high-tech equipment, things like silica, et cetera. And these mines are, are kind of self-contained, right? And they're able to bring in resources and export resources without necessarily going through the state apparatus and also the privatization of militias. And so the other problem is that a number of militias in Sudan that I think the government created because they thought it would be a low-cost way of fighting and that they, these militias would stay under the control of the army have now actually become internationalized and have their own deals with international capital. And that way for Sudan, there's this, the negative outcome would be that, you know, international capital feels like places like Sudan can remain kind of volatile and that it will be able to, from a distance, still control what it wants from those countries. Do you have any hope for Sudan's future, politically or otherwise? One thing in working on Sudan for, for about 10 years now, it's been interesting because I never knew a society could change so quickly. The class divisions, I feel, are not as hardened as they are in some other countries in the Middle East, in which being of the upper class is almost like you're living on a different planet. I mean, sure, there are great wealth disparities in Sudan, but there's a kind of sociability where, you know, people of the upper class will still talk with people of the middle class and lower class. And there's this way in which they're at least speaking to each other in a way that I felt like when I used to work in, for instance, in Jordan, I never saw. They lived almost in completely separate worlds with militarized police in between them. And in Sudan, I don't think it's at that stage yet. And so I think that gives you a certain class fluidity. And I think also the fact that society in Sudan can change so quickly, I think, means that there is still hope for building on the best of this revolution. So you started seeing, for instance, female graffiti artists who were like painting pictures of women on, on walls and, and outside and, and imams were allowing people to do that now. And women, you know, can 
at least in the cities, women are choosing to wear a headscarf or not wear the headscarf or, or, you know, going, living by themselves or going out and about. And I think the way in which you can see society also re-embrace kind of concepts from the left means that Sudanese society is still very dynamic and it's hard for us to predict, you know, where it will go from here. But I think there's a lot of hope for Sudan that this is a country in which real revolutionary social and political change is possible. Thank you so much, Alden, for engaging us in this conversation. All right, thank you again for having me. You're listening to Decolonization in Action podcasts, and this episode was hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. To learn more about the podcast or to find more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. We want to continue to express our gratitude for our guests and those who continue to promote the podcast. Thank you for joining us.